Well, good evening, Bayshore. Beautiful day. God has blessed us beyond what we deserve. Isn't that true? Uh, I have appreciated uh, the roots so very much. It's not easy being a dean. I, I speak from personal experience. There are all kinds of things that happen in the middle of the night uh, throughout the day that because you carry the title of dean, you are responsible for. So, uh, uh, Kendall and, and Jennifer, thank you for deaning. Uh, we appreciate it. <laughs> Somehow, we need to come up with Dean Beanies or something that basically express our uh, appreciation. Uh, just as a quick aside, uh, there are Spring Arbor uh, College, Spring Arbor University alumni sprinkled throughout. We're so pr proud of Michelle being one of our, our Spring Arbor students. And uh, we are blessed uh, in that institution to always have had a history of trying to put Christ first. But there were seasons in Spring Arbor's history where it took some effort to keep Jesus Christ at the center, particularly among our students. And I had the privilege, you'll appreciate this, Roots, of being the Dean of Students at Spring Arbor during one of the more difficult times. Kent State had happened, there was just a lot of unsettledness and that kind of thing, and, and we were dealing with uh, different issues on campus. Of course, we were a holiness school, and so we encouraged students not to drink, smoke, and chew and go with girls that do. It was kind of one of those situations <laughs> where we had a lot of kind of uh, specific restrictions that, that were important. And uh, so I got a call early in the morning, uh, Dean Geyertsen, we have a disciplinary problem in one of the men's dorms. And I said, well, yes, uh, what is that? And they said, well, we caught some of the boys drinking. Oh, I said. So I called the ringleader into my office and trying to be as stern as I possibly can, I said to him, you know what the rules and regulations are here at Spring Arbor. We don't drink, smoke, and chew and go with girls that do. And uh, so what's the deal here? And he looked at me just as, as sober as he possibly could, excuse the pun, and, and he said to me, Dean Gartson, you're not going to believe what was happening. I said, oh, I'm interested. And he, he said, uh, well, I, I, I brought some guys into my room and we decided we needed to pray. And he said, we were down on our knees praying and when we opened our eyes, all of the bottles of water in our room had turned to wine. <laughs> well, it caught me just right. And unfortunately, I laughed. And I thought, okay, I've lost the upper hand now in terms of my deanability, right? So I looked at him and said, okay, no more praying in your room. No more praying in your room. He got the message. So we understand the kinds of challenges that deaning and, in, and living in the deanery uh, basically brings upon us. And so we do love you and appreciate you and are thankful for the leadership you're giving. As we've been focusing this week on the whole topic of joy, one of the, the foundational elements that we need to grasp as human beings is that it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Uh, there was a, a song we used to sing, if you want joy, you must clap for it. If you want joy, you must you know, uh, uh, sing for it. If you want joy, you must shout for it. Uh, there's another verse that we couldn't sing at Spring Arbor. If you want joy, you can dance for it. We didn't do that uh, either. So drinking, smoking, chewing, going with the girls that do, and particularly girls that dance, 
you know, we just couldn't do that. But the idea is that the joy of the Lord fundamentally is our strength. And so it's key that we understand who God is. Who is the one who is the source of our joy? Who is this one that we're to look to? And our call, in order to be prepared for uh, the grace moments in these chronos times, in these chronos moments, these, these times that God has given us. And as we said, God didn't make any mistake. He looked down through history, and he knew what this time was going to be like. And much like with King David, who was prepared to serve God's purposes in his generation, you and I are being prepared, have been prepared, and will continue to be prepared to serve God's purposes in this generation. So he's made no mistake. Uh, oftentimes, as I mentioned the other day, you know, we long for a different time and a different place. But no, God in his sovereignty has chosen you. And you are right where you're supposed to be at this particular moment. Even if you got there in a state of rebellion, one of the interesting things about Scripture says that he can even make our sin be that which he can use to somehow shape us into the kind of people that can be ready for our Kairos moment and our Kronos moment in terms of what he has for us in this generation. And so the key is to know him. Uh, Philippians 3.10 is one of those deep longing scriptures in my own spirit. Oh, that I might know him. Is that where you are? Do you have a deep longing to know him more? Because you'll never have joy until you know him. You can clap, you can shout, you can jump, and you can dance. But that's not going to be enough because it's the joy of the Lord that will be your strength. And so to know him. And how do we know him? Well, we know him in Philippians 3.10, in the power of his resurrection. We know him because we have seen him revealed in Jesus Christ. And Jesus was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And so we know him in the power of his resurrection. But we also, I wish that verse stopped there, to be honest with you. It doesn't. You know, I Sometimes people like the loose-leaf Bibles, so you can pull out of there what you don't want, you know. And now with editing, in terms of having the, the Bible on the computer, you can go in and say, don't like that one, get rid of that. Don't like that one, get rid of that. But the Scripture, to be full, fully understood, has another part to it. Oh, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Boy, I wish that wasn't there. But there's a reality that somehow it's in the deepest depths of those times when we realize, but God, as we mentioned the other night, that there's no other hope, there's no other solution, there's no other possibility. We're at the end of our rope, and only God is going to fit in. And as we mentioned this morning in the Bible study, much like the, the, the mother bird who tries to coax its birds out of it's, it's little hatch, hatchlings out of the nest. Sometimes the nest has to be unsettled. And sometimes a mother bird will, will get rather proactive, stop feeding them in order to get them to leave the nest and soar. They weren't meant to stay, as we said this morning, in that nest. They were meant to fly and to soar. And if that doesn't do it, she'll start picking the nest apart and making it less and less comfortable because so often we become comfortable in Zion, as the old saying used to be. 
too comfortable in Zion. And so God allows things to come into our lives that unsettle our nests and get us ready to look for him more deeply and more clearly. We mentioned last night that for Isaiah, there were things in his life that essentially were blocking the full view of who God is. And so in his particular time, it was the king. So it was only when King Uzziah died that he was actually able to see God more clearly. King Uzziah's death unsettled the nest dramatically. 45 to 55 years of, of consistent, not always perfect, but consistent leadership. Isaiah and the rest of the Hebrew people had become dependent upon and secure in the comfort of knowing that things were predictable. And suddenly now Uzziah is dead. Where are they going to look? And with Uzziah no longer on the throne, then the king of kings and the lord of lords is now seen as the one who must occupy the throne. We mentioned that God never intended for Israel to have kings. It was prophets and priests that were supposed to lead the nation. But because they were whining and crying and God just got fed up with it and said, okay, you can have a king. And as I mentioned last night, Dr. Phil would probably, if he was alive then, uh, look at them and say, how's that working out for you? Not very well, because the vast majority of these kings, there were a few good ones, but the vast majority of them really took Israel in the wrong direction. And so it was necessary for Isaiah, who would be the primary biblical voice, to announce what then would be translated into that glorious music. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever. When we jump to the New Testament, we come across another major character who perhaps has done more to shape the nature of God's work and particularly the Lord's great commission and great commandment work uh, than any other biblical figure in the New Testament. And that's the Apostle Paul. Other than Jesus himself, who obviously is the author and finisher of our faith, the Apostle Paul became the primary instrument that God would use to advance the purposes of the kingdom and to lay the foundations uh, theologically and theoretically. We talk about in systematic theology, don't doze off on me here, uh, in systematic theology about orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right living because of that belief. And so the Apostle Paul was really the one who articulated the orthodoxy, what we must believe, and the orthopraxy, what we must do as a result of what we must believe. And the, the, the problem with, with Paul is he, like Isaiah, had something else on the throne. It was religious or religiosity or religious spirit. Uh, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, he was an individual who we think probably in our day and age would have had multiple PhDs. He understood Roman and Greek culture uh, deeply. His preaching and teaching reveals that. He was also a doctor of the church and a doctor of laws. He understood that. And he was so focused in on orthodoxy that he didn't realize that the orthopraxy, how things worked out in terms of whether or not the law, actually as it was being administered and communicated, produced the love that was the key 
to having the joy of the Lord as our strength. And so he gets involved. We think he may have been present when Stephen was stoned. There's some speculation about that, that he was so much committed to keeping the law the law, to keeping his understanding or the current contemporary understanding of what righteousness and religiosity was, that he was willing to not only participate in Stephen's death, but then pick up the mantle, so to speak, to go out and find these Christians, men, women, and children, and do what was ever necessary to stamp out this thing that he believed was not orthodoxy, that it was challenging the fact that the law is not what was written on two tablets, but the law is ultimately what's written on the heart. And so God had to confront him in a very dramatic way. And he does that on the road to Damascus. He's confronted with the fact and with a, with a voice, uh, the voice of the Lord himself saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul's the only one hearing this. The others are wondering what's going on. He's stopped. Uh, he's, he's on his face here. He's trembling in fear because he's hearing this voice. And this voice says, don't you realize how crazy it is for you to be kicking against the rose bushes, to be kicking against the thorns? You're kicking against the very thing that is necessary for everything you desire that the people that over whom you have influence would become everything God wants them to be. And at that moment, his eyes were opened, even though his eyes were closed. Uh, he was blinded to the things that had become his world so that his eyes could be opened to the new world that God had intended him to usher in. And so he reminisces a lot of times in terms of his storytelling. Uh, he, is a, he is a master theologian. He's a master philosopher. Uh, often you'll find him as he's presenting the claims of the gospel once he's accepted and anointed and, and sent out. Uh, and he's using theological and philosophical and rhetorical kinds of devices uh, to communicate and convince people that Jesus is Lord. And that continues on until Mars Hill. When he gets to Mars Hill, he does this same thing, and there is no response. He's had minor response. He's able to mentally, intellectually, or just through sheer personality, my uh, picture of, of uh, Paul is he was about five foot tall, about 90 pounds soaking wet in a real banty rooster. He didn't want to mess with the Apostle Paul. And so his presence, even though he may have been a small man, and even though he had a speech impediment, we think that, that that which was his troubling, his thorn in the flesh, likely was a speech impediment, or it could have been a physical impediment. There's some thought that perhaps he had an, an eye infection, he was losing his sight, and that when he was present with people, they could see the stuff oozing down his face. And there's just a lot of speculation as to what the thorn in the flesh was. But at Mars Hill, all of his standard tactics don't work. He's great. He says, I'm up here. I see you got lots of gods. You've even got a statue to an unknown god. Let me tell you about him. And so he articulates philosophically, theologically, theoretically, uh, using the rhetorical <laughs> devices that he had learned. 
and he finds that there's no result. From Mars Hill on, every time he's confronted with this opportunity of to tell why he's a Christian, he goes to personal testimony. It's really interesting. For me as a seminary professor, that's a little unsettling because we believe in right thinking, orthodoxy. You need to know what you know, what you know, and be able to share what you know that you know. But in the end, it wasn't orthodoxy or theory or theology that was changing hearts. It was whether or not the one who was communicating the orthodoxy had had their heart changed. One of the things that we teach in terms of of homiletics and the preparation of of, uh, preaching is that if it doesn't live in you, if it's not alive in you, it's not going to produce life in those who hear you. It's got to live in you. You've got to own it. It's got to be rooted in your personal testimony. And so for him, he has a fresh revelation of God. His vision of God before Damascus Road and before Athens basically is one of of uh, thinking rightly about God. But that doesn't stir the heart. And so as he's coaching Timothy, Timothy is given an incredible assignment, very young man, uh, asked to head the church in Ephesus. By the way, if you ever get a chance to do uh, a tour of uh, in the footsteps of St. Paul, uh, Ephesus will blow you away. What a city that was. And the the archaeological reconstruction there is some of the, the best I've ever seen anywhere in the world and gives you an idea of what the uh, the power of Ephesus was. Ephesus had one of the greatest uh, library collections in all of the known world at that particular time. It was strategically positioned in terms of trade routes. It had some of the best minds in the sciences and in the arts. Uh, it was an incredible place for young Timothy to be assigned as the senior pastor. And basically what Paul says is, what you've got to be alert to is the fact that these people, even the Jewish people, have got something else on their throne that is blocking their view of who God really is. And so he goes through this iteration in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, talking about those kinds of things and the challenges that will be presented to him and and the, the role of the law. And then he has what we used to refer to in in the holiness camp meetings when we would have testimony meeting as uh, uh, suddenly what comes on him is a glory fit. As he's working through 1 Timothy and talking about the nature of who God really is, he begins to say, and you can just almost, I can almost picture him in my old uh, experiences, standing up and shouting and to saying to Timothy, now unto the God eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. That he's revealing the nature of this God who wants us to have deep joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory. And for us to have and possess that, then we need to have a clear picture of him. And Paul suggests to Timothy that he also needs that picture, because we are ambassadors of the good news, and the good news is joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know the little chorus? Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, 
Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Sing it again. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Few of you knew it. Let's take a few moments to see how this picture transformed the ministry and most particularly informed the joy of the Apostle Paul. The first thing he says is that this is the God who is eternal. The good news is all things change and all things will come to an end because that in turn leads us to the reality that there is one thing and it's a person, the very God himself who never will change. He will be forever and forever, amen. You notice we say that sometimes in our prayers, forever and ever, amen. He is eternal. He always has been, he always is, and he always will be. And so we have great joy in knowing that the source of all of our hope, the source of the greatest expression of love ever demonstrated in human history, a God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son will always be there for us. He is eternal. And because we have embraced his son, we too have eternal life. Isn't that an incredible thing? That this God that we serve is one that will always be. And because he will always be, we too will always be. Does that make you joyful? Does that somehow inform you and, and, and excite you with the reality that while all things change and things that you've maybe put your confidence in, that you found your joy in? You know, I, I was into boating for a while and, uh, you know, I'd buy a new boat and before long, the joy wore off. Uh, you know, boats are uh, things that are holes in the water into which you dump money. They say the happiest moment in a boat owner's life is the day he buys it and the day he sells it. I know that was true for Nancy, particularly the second one. The happiest moment in her life was the day I sold it because it, it's going to deteriorate. You, you have a new house. Pretty soon, you got ants and termites and the roof leaks, and there are all kinds of things. There's nothing in this world that provides lasting joy because it's all deteriorating. It's unwinding. It's decaying. But the good news is that the God we serve, and this is what Paul was trying to say to Timothy. Look at You're living in a center where people are constantly looking for the next thing that they can hang on to and hold on to that will give them true happiness. But none of it is going to work. So you need to be prepared, Timothy, to communicate to them that there is a source of joy. And that joy is in someone who will never change. He is the God who is eternal. He was before time. He manages time. He will be beyond time. Hard for us to grasp. But the truth of the matter is that our joy is so deep and so intense because the one in whom we have joy is the one who always will be there to be the source of our joy. 
It goes on to say, unto the king eternal, immortal. This is an interesting uh, concept because it means that he's beyond mortality. Um, that, that as God lives through the ages, he doesn't suffer the kinds of challenges that all things that he created suffer as the age. Uh, I'm now in the senior citizen uh, category. I can hardly believe it. Um, but, you know, there's the, the reality is for us as senior citizens, um, we become increasingly aware of the fact that we, we are not immortal, uh, that, that for whatever reasons, uh, you know, things begin to wear out. And we'll go into a lot of detail uh, with those as you age, but all of us who are in that age group uh, realize that there is a mortality. Mort meaning death. We're all moving toward dying. Uh, here, uh, here's an announcement. Are you ready for it? None of us are getting out of here alive. Unless Jesus comes and there's a rapture. But right now, there seems 